On the telly now, it's Poirot, it's Poirot, and Poirot is the one who's going to solve the crime. You'll be found out by Poirot, by Poirot, and if you're lucky, you'll only end up doing time. For you know that most of these murders foul would end up with you being hanged in jail without fail. Without fail, that's what would happen to you. So if there's a crime, call Poirot, yes Poirot, and Poirot is about to go and solve this crime right now. On the telly now, it's Poirot. It's Poirot, it's Poirot, it's Poirot. The third international heat takes place next week when the host country will be Yugoslavia. It's full steam behind for Foggy, Clegg and Compo and the first programme of an absolutely new series of Last of the Summer Wine. Hello! Hello! I'm Andrew. I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 32 of Round the Archives. Of Round the Archives. I was getting confused as to what our numbering system yes. is till Warren pointed out that yeah. now we're in the 30s, yeah. it's 32 means it's February. Yes. Because... Yeah, yes, it, yes. I, that I, is so simple, yeah, but it I hadn't should've, occurred to I should have worked that out because yes. the trouble is, I'm working on episode 33 as well, yes. so it's I can't get into my head where, where yeah, on earth where we you are. are. But anyway, welcome everyone. Yes, uh, lots to get through mm-hmm. again. Bumper issue. Lots and lots of voices, mm-hmm. and that will happen again next month. Yes, <laughs> yes, we are inundated with lovely articles. Indeed. So. so thank you to everybody that sent us an article. Indeed. Uh, so first off, as you may have guessed from the opening song, yes, Martin Holmes will take a look at Poirot. Poirot. Debuting at the tail end of the 1980s and destined to run on and off for another 24 years and adapting with relative faithfulness to the source material all of his adventures as written by Agatha Christie, ITV's version of Poirot is at least initially a masterclass in adapting a well-known and long-running literary character for the small screen. Forget all of the other versions because, just like with Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes and Joan Hickson as Miss Marple, David Suchet's Poirot is pretty much the definitive version and is unlikely to be surpassed for a very long time, if ever, given the way television has changed in the intervening years. Those casting directors back then really knew what they were doing, didn't they? Some later episodes do deviate some way from the original words of Agatha Christie, with little reason given that her plotting and lean but insightful character studies are usually so immaculate, but these early stories are absolutely right on the money. There's still some who claim Agatha Christie was just a horrible old racist who ought not to get the praise she deserved, much of that based around some admittedly unfortunate stereotyping prevalent during the times the books were being written, and that one regrettable book title which used to use a word 
that we don't use nowadays in polite company, and which used to draw sharp intakes of breath from me and people of my generation and age group when even my own grandmother used to use it to describe a paint colour. I kid you not. But despite all that, Hercule, not Hercules, Poirot is a Belgian, not French, refugee who has made a good life for himself in the England between the wars by using his considerable deductive powers and his astonishing little grey cells to great effect. The opening episode, The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, written by the writer once ubiquitous for that kind of period drama, Clive Exton, and directed by Edward Bennett, was first broadcast on the 8th of January 1989 and very quickly shows pretty much all of the building blocks for the series as a whole already in place. Aside from Poirot himself, there's Captain Hastings, played with effortless, nice but dim charm by Hugh Fraser, the snappily efficient and loyal Miss Lemon, played by Pauline Moran, and the wonderfully bewildered but pragmatic Inspector Jap from Scotland Yard, played with quiet brilliance by Philip Jackson right from the get-go, all of whom would, to a lesser or greater extent, stick with the series, when required, right through to the end almost a quarter of a century and 13 series later. And they're all pretty much perfect casting. There's an old interview that my beloved's mother occasionally refers to with Joan Hickson, the actor responsible for breathing life into another definitive version of an Agatha Christie character, where she claims that finding the character was all about the shoes and getting the walk right. And in the strangely computerised Art Deco-ish title sequence, which admittedly has aged Tad and was wisely dropped in the later adaptations, Hercule Poirot definitely has a distinctive walk which, if the stories are to be believed, may have had something to do with David Suchet clutching a coin between his buttocks. The hour-long version of the series comes as a bit of a shock to viewers more used to the later feature-length version, which became the norm once the short stories have been pretty much all used up, but follows the model successfully used by Granada for most of its earlier The Adventures, Return, Casebook and Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes series, and this format stuck around for several years and was quite successful for much of the first five years until the more event style of the occasional feature-length stories finally took over for good. The episode itself opens with a once not quite a Doctor Who Dermot Crowley sweatily packing a hefty looking trunk in a room somewhere. There's a lot of rope tying and intensity and the shock of a vase smashing and whilst he might just be packing a trunk, well, he might also not be given that this is the shiny new murder mystery series known as Agatha Christie's Poirot, although the viewer might be distracted from its significance by the cast and credits popping up on screen while all this is going on. The action immediately shifts to Florin Court, representing the delightfully symmetrical Whitehaven mansions, the Art Deco-style apartment building where Hercule Poirot, a lover of order in the chaos of life, rather naturally chooses to reside. The first we see of our hero is his spats perched aloft as he rests and a tracking shot moves along his immaculately clad body to his face as, in a fit of almost Holmesian ennui, we find Monsieur Poirot contemplating the boredom of his existence with his loyal colleague Captain Arthur Hastings, who is going through the papers desperately trying to find a case worthy of contemplation by those little grey cells, whilst being distracted, as he will, by his own irrelevant flights of fancy. Several cases are dismissed, including a £90,000 bond robbery which, whilst being a king's ransom, is disappointingly not being used to ransom a king, and Poirot seeks a case of national importance to occupy his mind, otherwise he will touch it not. And so Poirot is instead fretting about the single spot of grease on his suit, and dealing with his overcoat and maybe giving his moustache a much overdue trim, when Miss Lemon bursts in with the grateful news that there is a lady to see him, and they are rescued from an afternoon of dealing with such mundane matters by a visit from Bridget Forsyth as the unreasonable Mrs. Todd, who is in search of her missing cook. 
Watching this, I was reminded of the vague sense we got uh, a couple of decades ago that we were being stalked by Bridget Forsyth. Well, <laughs> either that or we were ad inadvertently stalking her ourselves because she coincidentally turned up in the audience at several theatrical events we also attended. Even now we keep an eye out for her, even though we know it is terribly unlikely that she will appear. The scene here is a rather wonderful introduction to Poirot and his little foibles. From bristling at having been approached to investigate something as mundane as a missing domestic, to outright exasperation when Mrs. Todd suggests that he may himself have written a piece that she had seen in the newspaper praising his talents. Not that we put it past him. But Mrs. Todd is a terrifying force of nature, and her suggestion that he is too proud to take on such a trivial case, and that to someone like her a good cook's a good cook, and is just as great a loss, charms Poirot enough to take a car ride with her over to 88 Prince Albert Road, Clapham. At the moment, of course, we are supposed to suspect that maybe it is the missing cook who is the victim here, and of course it turns out that she is, but this being an episode of Poirot, perhaps not in the manner we at first think. On the way to the Todd's suburban semi-detached idyll, we see some beautifully recreated street scenes as their classic vintage car crosses Chelsea's Albert Bridge, which has been redressed back to the 1930s look, and where there are several other vintage vehicles and a host of extras in period dress, proving to the viewer that some serious money has been spent on this lavish-looking series. We also get to see Clapham Common as we pass by, also dressed with a full range of extras, so they're really not messing about here. A scene plays out with Poirot Hastings and Mrs. Todd in the back of her car and we discover that Eliza Don has sent for her travelling box the large trunk we hopefully remember from the opening scenes and we also learn that Mrs Todd has or had two servants one being Eliza Don the missing cook and the other being her maid how times have changed folks a relatively affluent middle class but otherwise fairly ordinary suburban couple would have full-time domestic staff living in to do the cooking and cleaning despite Mrs Todd not having a job herself small wonder people lived in such fear of destitution, and no wonder so many of us have grandparents who were in service when they were younger. There was a war coming, and that would change everything, but that's still some time in the future for these stories. The scene ends with Mrs Todd pointing out that's number 88, and the car in the wide shot taking a long, long time to actually pull up to number 88, from the time of her mentioning it to actually stopping on another fully redressed street. As they enter the house, however, Poirot is concerned and confides to Hastings that never must Chief Inspector Jap hear I have investigated such a case, because he's still bothered about his reputation, even if his Poirot sense is tingling, and sometimes you just get the impression that Poirot knows more about what's going on already. Inside number 88, Poirot chats to Annie below stairs. Annie is played by Katie Murphy and gives a lovely performance in a charming little scene where Poirot is both charming and a bit of an old flatterer as he listens to her naive tales of white slavers and the cook's obsession with the stewed peaches which might have led to her astray and discovers that the box was already packed before it was sent for which proves significant to him as he demonstrates an impeccable logic that Annie quite obviously doesn't have although for her a penny does finally drop and it's a delight to see. He's always very polite and kind to anyone in domestic service, is our Poirot. It's as if he has an affinity for the underdog and really feels sympathy for their wretched lot in life, especially when such a life is made particularly wretched by their snotty employers who, but for the grace of, and so forth, could very well have been in domestic service themselves. 
You tend to notice that if you watch him a lot. The great and the good often get short strift, but rarely the domestics. Well, not unless the domestic is just a villain pretending to be a domestic, of course. Outside the door, Mrs. Todd has been earwigging, feeling rather paranoid that sweet little Annie might be bad-mouthing her employer. As Poirot takes his leave of Annie and heads back upstairs, she scuttles away from the door and pretends to read her magazine, displaying all of her middle-class snobbery in a sparklingly played character moment, which marks her out momentarily as a bit of a wrong gun with secrets to hide. We also learn that the banker's wife also has a banking lodger, and that the missing ninety grand mentioned earlier starts to get Monsieur Poirot's little grey cells tingling. Seeing as the banker and his clerk aren't due back for a while, Poirot and Hastings bugger off to the park for an hour, justifying all those extras we spotted on the common earlier, and Poirot points out that the clerk Simpson worked in the same office as the absconded clerk Davis, missing along with all that money since the previous Wednesday. The plot, as they say, is thickening. After their stroll and chat, they return to the house and meet Miss. Mr. Todd Anthony Carrick, who is obviously a cad as he only makes himself a drink and doesn't offer to share his booze with either Captain Hastings or Poirot. So far, so suburban, Agatha doesn't seem particularly smitten by the middle classes. Or doctors, for that matter. She really does seem to have it in for doctors if you read a lot of her works. But, getting back to the plot, for the moment we are suspicious of these Todds, and as he guides them up the staircases towards Simpson the Lodger's room, all we note from the relative comfort of his own hallway, there's no way he was going to climb all the way up there. The sinister soundtrack tells us that something is indeed afoot. On knocking, however, Simpson answers, and Poirot gets to meet him face to face, and surprise, surprise, it's that sinister, sweaty-looking fellow we saw packing that trunk right at the start of the programme, and so perhaps the Todds are simply horrible middle-class folk after all. So, in a roundabout way, Poirot interviews Simpson, and Simpson in return obfuscates, claiming to know nothing, as Poirot goes to depart in the best Columbo just one more thing tradition, he asks, tell me, and after a significant pause, asks a seemingly innocent sounding question about what a young gentleman gets up to in his free time. At this point he gets in very close to Simpson and we begin to wonder whether he understands English boundaries in this funny foreign way and whilst his queries about amateur theatricals all seem rather throwaway, keep watching because they will become very significant later. Meanwhile, night has fallen in Clapham, and as they are walking back across the bridge at night in a very expensive-looking night shoot, Poirot points out to Hastings that just because somebody doesn't offer to give you a drink doesn't make them a criminal, and that he is very interested in this case indeed. We then cut to Poirot in close-up in his office in an absolute fury as Mr. Todd has been in touch to tell him that his wife was out of line and that he should drop the case and has tried to pay him off with a single guinea for his trouble. Poirot is livid and rants about this two-penny, half-penny case as Poirot's slightly misspoken use of English is something of a character point and his pride has been hurt. Swearing that he intends to get to the bottom of this, no matter what the cost, he asks Miss Lemon to place a notice that he has something that would be to her advantage, as Hastings corrects him to put it, in all of the newspapers. Miss Lemon dismisses the Times, thinking that a cook is unlikely to read such a publication, but Poirot sagely points out that someone who knows her may read the Times. Hastings, meanwhile, wants to pop over to Sundown Races, a little moment that helps to underscore both Hastings' indolence and his love of gambling. This is the first of several Hastings' sure things that rarely turn out well and will become a bit of a running gag throughout their time together. Meanwhile, Poirot decides to pop to the City of London and meets up with a bank manager, Mr Cameron, played by Richard Bebb, in the beautiful Art Deco interior of the bank. We will see far more of this kind of stuff as the series progresses, often one suspects in exactly the same filming location. 
Meanwhile, in the lovingly recreated location of the bank's interior, Chief Inspector Jap is interviewing staff about the missing 90 grand, and is in conversation with the very same Simpson we saw earlier, who worked with Davis and seems to suggest that the missing Davis never went to foreign places. In the middle of the interview, he spots Pyro coming down the stairs, pointing out to Jap that he recognises him from yesterday. Jap goes over to say hello. And as he turns, Poirot's face becomes a picture of mock surprise, even as it turns out that Jap knows that he's been reduced to finding missing domestics. Which is the first example of the affectionate banter within the friendly relationship that exists between the two characters, which develops throughout the stories. Interestingly, at this time, Poirot seems to not be the pale, more refined figure we later see in high definition in later series. It could, of course, simply be down to the film stock being used at this time, but the show does have a very different look to it in those earlier series. There follows a bit of a montage as Poirot waits at home to hear from the missing cook. We see him at the window, close up on his telephone, still nothing and Poirot seems bothered and distracted in his office. Time has passed and he hasn't had any response to his adverts or any word from Eliza until a letter brightens him in which she announces that she's already got her legacy and is happily residing in Keswick or Keswick as Poirot amusingly puts it. And so Hastings and Poirot have a train to catch and soon a steam train crosses the wide open spaces of the Lake District with a couple of extras in period hiking gear in the foreground just to show it's not stock footage they're using. The chat on the train is all about the empty wasteland of this particular version of the countryside which compares interestingly with the Sherlock Holmes view of the great outdoors harbouring the worst of criminals several decades earlier. And Poirot is pondering upon bigger things in his enigmatic way. Then, in an almost comic sequence, the same feet we first saw of him are now unpleasantly standing in mud, and as Poirot and Hastings are troubled by sheep, we see Poirot as a veritable fish out of water in this dreadful great outdoors, preferring paintings to the harsh reality of the countryside and extolling the virtues of the good air of town. Arriving at the humble home of Fell Cottage, Poirot is less than impressed, even though the missing cook has been found. Frida Dowie, playing Eliza, is a simple and elderly soul, unlikely to have been the target of the white slave trade, but she has a quiet dignity in the fact that she is no longer a servant, and that this is her house. Her pride in the small sum of money and the house she inherited is all quite tragic, really. Although she is naive, we are not supposed to think she's a bit dim. She simply hoped for a better life and thought that her ship had come in. The story doesn't dwell upon the disappointments to come, although she does seem surprised that Mr Crotchet did not forward on her a letter of explanation to Mrs Todd like he promised to. There is a flashback. She was intercepted on her way home from her day off the previous Wednesday and taken to a cafe by this Mr Crotchet, and where she was told of her legacy, this house and a small amount of money, by this scruffy-looking man claiming to be a lawyer and who had, bad guy disguise alert, a beard and glasses. I don't imagine someone with Eliza's background might have known he was particularly scruffy-looking, by the way, especially with such good news to impart, and she certainly failed to notice this was a disguised lodger running a bit of a red-headed league-style con on a naive spinster. One of the stipulations of the alleged last will and testament she's benefiting from is that she mustn't be a domestic, and because this is a greed con, he persuades her that she had to have left domestic service before we met, and as the penny drops, we're making a fortune here, this suddenly all seems so sad when we realise what he has persuaded her to do, pretty much give up her security to become complicit in a lie. 
Back in the present with Poirot, the fact that her possessions turned up wrapped in brown paper and not in her trunk becomes clearer to her. She assumed that Mrs. Todd was offended, but she would be if she'd not got her letter of explanation. The pace now quickens, leaving the no longer missing cook behind to find out the awful truth for herself. Poirot and Hastings make haste to return to London, and Poirot makes a hasty phone call to Inspector Jap from a phone box on Carlisle Station before dashing onto a train. We know this is supposed to be Carlisle Station thanks to a huge and probably wildly inaccurate sign filmed somewhere completely different, I'm sure, but no matter. As they travel back towards civilization, Poirot and Hastings have another chat as they sit in the relative comfort of first class, and we get the first proper mention of those little grey cells as the fiendish plot is explained to both Captain Hastings and those of us sitting at home. The earlier proximity is explained when Poirot reveals that he spotted a fleck of theatrical gum in Simpson's sideburns as he was talking to him, and because Hastings is sometimes so very dim, he slowly catches up with the fact that Simpson, in disguise, was pretending to be the lawyer, but finally, finally he gets it, and yet another penny drops. We really are making a fortune here. Poirot, as he will, smiles knowingly in extreme close-up. Poirot knows. Back at 88 Prince Albert Road, Poirot arrives to find the police there and the whole household in a bit of a frenzy. When the door is answered, to prick his pomposity, he is not recognised by the uniformed officers, and we get one of those some French chap gags that permeate the entire series as his Belgian roots are misunderstood. And emerging Inspector Jap is not happy with what he believes to have been something of a wild goose chase, believing Simpson to be the bank clerk he claims to be, and not the notorious crook Poirot thinks that he is. Although Mrs. Todd berating Poirot through a downstairs window is even more unhappy with him and gives him short shrift with exclamations of you were paid off and he is denied access to ask Annie his one vital question. However, not to be outwitted, he sneaks down the back stairs outside to talk to Annie through the window and extricates more details about the once missing cook's now missing box and specifically about the label. And because she's not completely daft and actually rather sweet, Annie remembers what was written upon it and where it went, Twickenham Station, and we have been treated to another scene of Poirot being rather lovely to her again. And of course, we now know that Poirot knows what's going on and when Poirot knows, the game is pretty much over. We head off to another exterior railway station location with all its art deco loveliness again, and Poirot replies to Hastings' question about the house in Keswick by suggesting that he'd be surprised if she was in more than a six-month lease, which is so sad, and the only real acknowledgement of the miserable fraud committed upon Eliza Dunn. We are left to wonder about the consequences for in the long run, although a good cook is a good cook, so hopefully she'll be all right in the end. Meanwhile, as they approach a window, Poirot explains that Simpson did all of this rather than buying a new trunk because he needed a respectable trunk to put the body in. Clang! Sadly, the trunk in question has been sent to Glasgow, and whilst the porter they talk to is sarcastic about the fact that it has been, Poirot flatters to deceive him, while Hastings is, is all, Now see here, my good man, gittishness, and has to be shut up. However, they do manage to extract this supposition that the porter bets that the supposed owner of the trunk's going to Bolivia because he noticed it written on the notes in the stack of cash he was brandishing when he paid. Danny Webb, playing the porter incidentally, is one of the select few guest actors to get to play more than one role in the Poirot TV series. He'd return as its superintendent Bill Garraway in Elephants Can Remember 24 years later, rather nicely bracketing the series with appearances in both the first and the last series of episodes. Back at Poirot's office, they are busily checking the newspapers for the week's sailings, those were the days, and Poirot has to point out to Hastings that Bolivia is a landlocked country, whilst Miss Lemon is wistful about such exotic names in an era when such travel to faraway places were little more than a dream for most people. Finding what they need, they must away to Southampton, but first they must pay a visit 
to Scotland Yard and explain to a bewildered and sceptical Inspector Jap about what's really been going on as he's been chasing round looking for the missing Clark Davis. In Jap's office, he is still insistent that it is Davis whom they are after until the phone rings explaining that the missing trunk has indeed been found in the Glasgow luggage office and whilst Poirot implores them to open it, the forces of law and order still need a warrant. Something expedited when Poirot exclaims that it might just have Davis's body in it. And in the fine tradition yet to be established in the series, denouement, denouement, Poirot explains as the body is indeed found rather nastily folded inside the trunk as expected and covered with a voiceover which transports us to Southampton docks where Poirot and company arrive and board the SS Navonia, discovering to their chagrin that sailings discontinued and Simpson is not aboard. However, Another penny drops, hopefully not the one clutched firmly between our hero's buttocks, and it becomes apparent, apparent? <laughs> it becomes apparent that he'll be trying to get aboard the Queen of Heaven because he's off to Caracas in Venezuela and that the word on the money spotted by the porter was Bolivar, their unit of currency, and not Bolivia after all. And with a bellow of Simpson! who, like an idiot, looks around, and another shout of STOP THAT MAN, which a pair of handy stewards dutifully do, Simpson is taken, and gives our heroes the look of pure hatred of a man soon to be condemned to the gallows. And, as we think about one inevitable hanging, we cut to a picture being hanged, sorry, hung, on Poirot's wall, with Poirot on directing duties and Miss Lemon wrangling the hammer to knock the nail in. Poirot has had Mr. Todd's cheque for one guinea framed, and, as he takes credit away from Miss Lemon, who was actually hanging it, points out that the cheque will serve as a reminder that little cases, such as the search for a missing domestic, became solving a notorious murder, and, in close-up, seems duly satisfied, and even the building they are all supposedly inside gets a credit at the end. And there you have it, the first episode of Agatha Christie's Poirot TV series, Accept No Imitations, which ran for 70 episodes over the following half-century and brought life into all of the adventures featuring this character written by Agatha Christie herself and featuring a consistent main cast, which is no small achievement in this day and age. Other Christie adaptations have come along since, and they too have their fans and are of their time, but for me, this is the Poirot that I want, and they made an excellent job of it. Many thanks to Mr. Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. I, I have got a huge box of box set of Poirot. I really must watch some more. But you, you do watch them, don't I you? I do, but yeah. I usually watch them more on ITV3 when they're yeah. being repeated, despite the fact I've got them sitting on the it, floor. It's that over. thing of you've got the entire set. Yeah, but if it's on the telly, you've got to watch it. But you watch it. it when it's on the telly. Yeah. Weird, yeah. isn't it? It is. Uh, right. New voices. Ahoy. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. Uh, Bob Fisher and Andrew T. Smith are here to look at Last of the Summer Wine. Hey up everyone, I'm Andrew T. Smith. Hello, it's Bob Fisher here. And together we are... The Summer Winos! Are we meant to do that 
together in unison in Possibly, harmony. but it's not as if we've rehearsed this. Oh, come on, should we try it? Together we, we are, are the, the summer winos. I think it was better just doing it separately. Yeah, probably. Let's never, ever, <laughs> ever try to do that again. Uh, so, uh, delighted to be on Round the Archives. Thanks for having us, yeah. so to speak. Uh, we should few talk, that will. Do, yeah, we should talk a little bit about Summer Winos, really. This is our quest to watch all of Last of the Summer Wine in order. Uh, so that would be 295 episodes, Drew. Yep, 295 episodes. Yeah. What were we thinking? I know. <laughs> it's been lovely, though. It has, it has been. And Summer Winos is also, it's not just us watching these and keeping it to ourselves. Yeah. It's a blog yeah. that has become a live show now as well. Yeah, I'm not Improbably. quite sure how that happened. <laughs> uh, should we talk a little bit about how the blog actually started? Because I think the, the genesis of this was genuinely when the final episode of Last of the Summer Wine was broadcast. Yeah, I mean, Bob and I have been friends for far too long now. Yeah, but, we've been we sick we, of each other. <laughs> we knew we had this, this liking for Summer Wine in common. Uh, last of the summer wine, in case anyone hadn't picked up on that. Yeah. Um, and so when important, <laughs> important to pander to people that might not be aware of the full title of the program. By the time the last episode of the series aired, we'd both kind of drifted away from the program, dipping in here and there every now and yeah. then. Um, but we decided we'd get together and make a make a day of it. Yeah, uh, we did it. It was it was a bank holiday weekend, I think. It was uh, August twenty ten. Uh, so we, we got together in my front room. A few uh, drinks. Did have a few drinks. Uh, there was probably biscuits involved. I know we made a note of what kind of biscuit we were eating because we weren't aware of the momentous historical occasion that it was going to prove to be. No, but, but somewhere I... in our archives there is video evidence of this as there well that as we well. needed to take out at some point. We were so filled with our own sense of self-importance we actually filmed ourselves <laughs> watching the final episode of Lost the Summer Wine. <laughs> it's our version of the unearthly child run-through, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's the pilot, the unscreened pilot. I mean, you know, if I had to put money on it, I would say chocolate digestives. Probably. Uh, but yeah, as, as we watched that last episode with no intention of, of going any further, I don't think. No. We just did it for because it would be nice to get together and watch it. And then at the end of it, we were in danger of repeating a big chunk of our live show. Yeah, here. we'll do the brief version. <laughs> at the end, uh, as the credits rolled on that final episode of Last of the Summer Wine, you did genuinely turn to me and ask a question. Yeah, a momentous, life-changing question, a question some might it say. Is possible to recreate. We are doing the live show yeah, here. We won't we'll stop doing that. No, the question. Should we watch all of Last of the Summer Wine in order? Yeah, all right. And then we did. <laughs> and then we did, we started. And um, I think it's fair to say we've got more ambitious as we've gone along, isn't it? Because mm. when you read the early blog entries that we did, uh, I think, do we start in 2011? The actual blogging started yeah, I think in 2011, so, yeah. I think. And um, when you read those early entries, they're pretty perfunctory. Yeah, and originally, because we didn't think, or I didn't think that Last of the Summer Wine would sustain a whole blog of its own. It was it was me and a combination of writing on my own and a couple of different people watching yeah. things in order. So 
in addition to Last of the Summer Wine, there was Coronation Street. That was never going to happen. <laughs> you were going to watch all of Last of the Summer Wine and all of Coronation Street. And the Pirates and- of the Caribbean. <laughs> uh, which there is a connection we found out later on there is a connection oh, between there is actually, the Caribbean do you know what I should wine. make a note of that because we will undoubtedly completely forget to come back to that if I don't. <laughs> but there is absolutely yeah. Um, but far from not having much to say about Last of the Summer Wine the more we started to, to write these entries the, the, the bigger and longer and yeah. more detailed and more insane they became until not that far into the experiment, we just decided to let's just make summer wine as its own thing, its own blog. Because I think we re- we realised, didn't we, that there were elements of social history involved here. Yeah. We 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 realised that quite early on. When you've got a sitcom that ran for thirty seven years, across quite a, um, a a period of British history that changes a lot. Absolutely. So yeah. you know, it's nineteen seventy three to two thousand and ten. Mm. Now those two eras of British history are virtually unrecognisable. And from specifically, each other. it's nineteen seventy three Yorkshire to two thousand ten Yorkshire. It's, it's not it's swinging not, London. Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 its own pocket universe. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So it was quite early. We started to spot things like, like the soot on the buildings in Homefirth in 1973, all of the buildings are black, yeah. which I'd completely forgot that as an element of my childhood, but because everybody had a coal fire mm-hmm. in 1973, there was just soot and filth yeah. everywhere. Homefirth is quite frankly horrible in those early episodes. It's not, it's not now, before anybody from Homefirth comes <laughs> no, together. It's, it's truly beautiful now. <laughs> but I think we've, we've, we've mentioned this, haven't we? <laughs> in fact, bravely, we mentioned this at a live performance in Homefirth. <laughs> It was a little rumble, <laughs> but it was it, Homeforth was chosen because it was a bit down on its luck in nineteen seventy-three. Yeah, I always forget the name of the documentary it was featured in. It's a Barry Tuck documentary, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, looking at the working men's club yeah. scene in specifically in Homeforth. Yeah, and it's just such a grim piece of television. Yeah, of these men, you know, slogging their guts out during the week or being unemployed during the week. Yeah. And then going down the the social club for a rather ratty looking striptease act <laughs> as their entertainment, and someone at the BBC saw this and thought, "That's our sitcom." Yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah. at least that's the the setting for our sitcom. Well, it's interesting watching the attitudes as well in those early episodes, and you've got episodes that deal with the nature of of faith. You know, Christian mm. faith is mentioned quite a lot, and it's it's quite clear in those early episodes that Blaymeyer, who is the the original third man pre-Foggy... Yeah, Michael Bates being brilliant as he always yeah, he's is. superb. Uh, but he's quite a... You know, he's a committed Christian in those early episodes, but it isn't an integral part of his character at all. It's just there. No, no. And it's, and it's made reference to quite a lot... And he's, I don't think he's, that he's, would he's happen typical anymore. Church of England. Yeah, he is. That is. He's culturally Christian. Yeah. It's just taken as fact that's yeah. what he is and I don't think that would happen anymore you couldn't do a Christian character in a 2019 and sitcom and not have a thing that they're yeah. about yeah. yeah so it's showing little things like that about how we've changed over the last mm. 45 46 years um, that really got to us and, and I think as the blog has gone on like our entries have become more and more verbose <laughs> our reviews of every episode have become more and more verbose because we've become more interested in picking up on and documenting stuff like that. Yeah, I, I can't remember what the record is, but I think we wrote about 35,000 words on the first uh, television movie. <laughs> yeah, no, there are, there are some long bits of writing on there. That is absolutely true. 
Um, so that's how it started, and that's how it's it's rumbled on over the last good God, it's eight years. That's <laughs> <laughs> all we've done. I did, I did find uh, one of the early entries I was spotted last week, and I mentioned in it that I'm 39 and I'm, I'm 47 this year. And I'm still not 39, I'm quite happy to say. <laughs> You're a child when we started doing this. How old were you in 2011? Um, count backwards. Come on, work this out. I would have uh, been, hang on, one. Oh, for two, crying out loud. He actually got his fingers out here, listeners. I was young. Yeah. I was young. All right. <laughs> Were you 24? Yeah. You're 25. Yeah. It's appalling. <laughs> um, we should talk a little bit, I think, about the appeal of Last of the Summer Wine to us. I mean, even before we started doing this. Mm. Um, what was it for you? What was it about Last of the Summer Wine that spoke to you as a kid? Because, as, you know, as we talk about in the live show, it wasn't particularly a sitcom that was geared towards a child audience and yet we both fell in love with it as kids no I think it definitely wasn't geared towards that audience when it started but I suppose by the time I got to it which is the early 90s when uh, Foggy comes back for the second yeah. time or comes back for the first time uh, for his second stint it had become broader and Bill Owens combo had ended his pixie phase I think he was this sort of the Chaplin-esque kind of character, this tramby little figure who did silly things. He's kind of childlike himself, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, and each week involved, you know, slapstick and stunts, and there yeah. were characters like Eli, who was this sort of Mr. Magoo kind of character who couldn't see anything, yeah. back every week doing a similar kind of gag. And I think to a kid, it's it's that it's that kind of thing that first grabs you, or at least it did to me. Yeah. Um, and I could also recognise the world in which it was set. I know the Edie's ladies circle where they're all drinking the cups of tea in her yeah. house and, and moaning about the men in their lives was definitely something that I latched onto as being the same as when my grandmother's sisters would turn up into yeah. her bungalow and they'd all catch up and sitting there with their little china cups and their biscuits. Um, and it was a world that you didn't see represented in many other places, I think. Especially not by the 1990s. No. No. The hip, cool... 1990s, colourful 1990s. Yeah, yeah. It was the same for me, I think, in the 80s. I mean, I, I, my first memory of watching it is in certainly the very early 80s, um, and it was the first Foggy era, so, you know, Foggy, Compo and Clegg uh, in that era. And and it, it definitely reminded me of me and my dad being out in the countryside mm. and that kind of sort of pragmatic northern attitude towards the countryside well you know you're not necessarily standing on a you know at the edge of a glorious vista mm. being consumed by the majesty of nature <laughs> you know you're picking up like, blades of grass and making farty noises by blowing into them it was that <laughs> attitude to being out in the countryside that i saw in last of the summer wine but i also i the dialogue as well also really mm. uh, appealed to me as a kid because again, it's that northern thing, and I don't think you know. I can't think of another program on TV where people would tell each other to bog off, <laughs> which was a you know a, a, a popular turn of phrase at my yeah. school. Um, so that that kind of northern bluntness, I think, really got to me. Mm. But it was a family thing as well, like you, you say about your dad, um, uh, and uh, you know, Edie's circle reminding me, reminding you of your family. Yeah. For me, it was 
like a family experience of watching it. It was definitely something that me and my parents would all watch. And if my gran was around, she would watch it as well. And we'd all enjoy it together. Um, and I never thought for a second, oh, it's about old people. That never no, occurred to me. No. Uh, older people, perhaps that's yeah. because I was a kid. But it wasn't yeah. about decrepit old people or people who were behaving in a stereotypically pensionerish manner no they're funny old yeah. people they've got a zest for life and they're doing stuff that as a kid you'd want to do they're on a constant summer holiday yeah that's that, that those long summer weeks where you fill your time yeah when you're not having to go to school and you don't have this routine they've been stripped of their routine as well because they're all uh, either redundant yeah. or uh, retired or they've never worked uh, mostly redundant really they're people who've been abandoned at least in those early years yeah uh, Craig has been let go from the co-op and mm. Blaymeyer is out of the army. Yeah, uh, Foggy's out of the army. Foggy's out of the army, appears. yeah. And Com- uh, Compo hasn't worked for over 30 years. Yeah, and even even later on with uh, Frank Thornton as truly, he's mm. a policeman who now doesn't have anything to police. Yeah. So he's got to fill that gap somehow. And I think it is it's childlike in that sense. It's, it's whiling away time. You're right. I've never thought about that summer holidays thing, but you're absolutely right. It's... Um... And I get that like, it would be hard to explain to like a, a child of 2019, I think, mm. how we struggle to fill our time in the summer holidays, pre-internet, pre-smartphone, yeah. pre-computer games, pre-consoles. Yeah. You know, you had, you, you had six, they seem to go on forever. Six weeks now just goes like that, it's nothing. Yeah. But six weeks of doing nothing, essentially, in the summer holidays, of mm-hmm. having to find stuff to do every day. And it was the era when, you know, you would take up hobbies in your summer holidays, mm. and it would be the same kind of hobbies that the people in Last of Summer Wine Yeah, like building a treehouse or yeah. fannying about in a river or... Building a little cart and rolling it down a hill. Yeah. It's all of that, I think. Um, what's really been nice about, about doing the Summer Winos quest is how it's picked up a community I think as it's gone along hasn't it? Yeah it definitely has even very early on we started getting regular commenters people who would you know join us in watching it in order every every time we posted Yeah. Um, and often the comments that they posted pointed us in directions we hadn't thought of before or they spotted references to, to cultural things that we hadn't picked up on things like that and we've kind of picked up a couple of people involved with the program as well, which has been a lovely surprise. Yeah. We, did, we, we, we did start to interview people, didn't we? We spoke to Stuart Fell. Yeah, was, we started reaching out, reaching out to people who we could yeah. get hold of. So there. Stuart Fell was Bill Owen's stuntman, who was great and told us some lovely stories. Yeah, lovely man. Uh, Juliet Kaplan, uh, who played Pearl, uh, we contacted. So just through her website. You did yes, that one, it was. Yeah, it was through her website and we spoke on Skype. Yeah. Um, only woman in the world capable of blowing cigarette smoke down a Skype connection. <laughs> <laughs> but she is wonderful she and is has incredible. brilliant stories to share. And I think like a real game changer for us. I mean, Stuart and, and Julia were, were lovely and brilliant. Um, but I think a real game changer for us was was making friends with Jonathan Lindsley, mm-hmm. who um, played Crusher in the 1980s. Yeah, he was we, uh, we... Ivy's nephew in the cafe. It's big sort of 
hulking biker figure. Yeah, we noticed that he'd started to post comments on um, different social media platforms that we were going to to, yeah. to, to plug our own blog. Um, we noticed that he was just posting as himself, answering fans' questions, you know, giving giving a lot back to the fans, actually. Totally. Um, and it was also very apparent that he loved the show. Yeah. You know, it, it's clearly been a highlight for him. And He's a genuine fan, still, isn't he? Yeah. Himself. He, he was a fan before it began. Yeah. Fan during and and it's clearly something he's very very fond of that time in his life and um, so we reached out to him and said would you mind you know, having a quick chat with us for the blog and we conducted a mammoth interview it was a couple Jonathan. of hours wasn't it yeah he, he has such great stories to tell yeah um, because he's, he's he's one of those links back to people like uh, Joe Gladwin he told us loads about Joe Gladwin who played Wally Batty Nora's henpecked husband yeah Um. You know, stories that would be otherwise lost to the ages because, you know, where is where is Joe Gladwin's biography? It does not exist. That's, that's a, one, of, one of the loveliest things about doing this is finding out stuff like that. Because like you say, if you Google Joe Gladwin, you'll find out, you know, a, a decent amount about his TV career. But that only started in the late 1950s, by which point Joe was, you know, he was over 50 himself then. Um but it was it was Jonathan that told us about sitting on the Buster locations next to Joe Gladwin and Joe, who would have been you know in his late seventies at that point, told Jonathan all about his early life, about running away from home to join a travelling variety show. He stole his father's coal-powered tractor, was yeah, it? Yeah, and on the, on the variety circuit, yeah. he was billed as the world's strongest man. <laughs> come on in a leotard. Yes. He come on in a leotard, tried to lift weights and collapse and faint and be carried out by doctors. And then at the <laughs> end of the, the night... It's the 1920s, yeah, 1930s. Proper showmanship. It is. And then at the end of the evening's entertainment, when the audience filed out of the theatre, there'd be an ambulance there and Joe would be being loaded into the ambulance. <laughs> just as one last gag, um, which is just brilliant. But this stuff isn't written down anywhere. No. If you Google for Joe Gladwin, you won't find any of this. At some point, I would really like the pair of us to get together and, and work on something substantial about Joe and yeah. his life. I'd love to write Joe's biography. Yeah, we should, we should definitely try tracking down more people who knew him, even yeah. family members, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Roy Clark... Roy Clark, yes. <laughs> the the spectre of Roy Clark loomed up over us for a long time. Uh, because he is such a a legendary figure in British comedy, I think, and he's someone we admire so much. Yeah. And we were reluctant to get in touch with him. <sighs> I, we talked about this for years, hadn't we, about do we do we tell Roy Clark? You know, mm. if anybody is unaware, the the guy who wrote all two hundred and ninety five episodes of Last of the Summer Wine and Open All Hours and Keeping Up Appearances and, and still Open All Hours. Yeah. He's still it's still writing right. a prime time BBC sitcom. The man's eighty seven, is he? Uh, yeah. Eighty eight, possibly. It's, either way, yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's impressive. Um so and, and for years we thought, well do we tell him about uh Summer Winos because Quite frankly, you might not like it. Yes. You might say, who are these two northeastern pillocks picking apart yeah. my TV scripts? <laughs> right of they. And, and I think you would have been entirely justified in saying that. Um, but we were given <laughs> we were given his home address, weren't yes. we? In a brown envelope under a table <laughs> in a gloomy backstreet cafe. <laughs> We did. And how long did we sit on it? I think it was quite a long time. It was probably about a year, I think. I think so. Yeah. But we toyed with it. Because if he'd said, stop doing this, we would have had to. 
yeah, I wouldn't I think have so, wanted yeah. to do this against the wishes of Roy Clark. Um, but we, we finally plucked up the courage and wrote him a letter. And I think I was at work. I was on the radio the following day. Oh, a couple of, it was only a couple of days after we yeah. sent it. I was on the radio. And you texted me and said, check your email. <laughs> I can't. I'm on the radio. Just tell me. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was in London with work at the time. Oh, having you? a pretty miserable day. And then right. Roy Clark's name shows up in the inbox. <laughs> well, how did you feel when you were about to open that email? <laughs> I can't remember what his subject line was. I can't Leave remember. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's what we were expecting. <laughs> um... Yes, I put a cliffhanger in there. Yes, what will Roy Clark say? Well, you'll have to come back next time to, to find, find out. out. Yes. Because uh, Bob and Andrew's piece mm-hmm. will continue. Yes, in episode 33. Now, we should just mention a few things to do with them. Yes. Bob may be heard on BBC Tees of an evening yes, on, on the radio. Yes, which can be listened to on the iPlayer. Yes, and mm. I sometimes do, and sometimes yes. I send in silly messages that get yes. read out. Yes, and I think he's, he's, he and his, his sort of producer are quite surprised sometimes. Why is somebody a Dorset listening to you? <laughs> <laughs> Martin even got his poem about Cyril Shapps read out the other it's night. It's a very nice poem. You should listen to that one, if nothing else. Bob's also got a book out, mm-hmm. Whiffle Lever to Full, mm-hmm. which I've got in my hand here, yes. which is about his encounters with science fiction fandom Yes, from Doctor Who, Blake Seven, mm-hmm. Discworld, yeah. Star Wars, Star mm-hmm. Trek, Robner Sherwood, Red Dwarf. Everything. Because he did come down here and have a water pistol fight. He did, apparently, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he did. But the Summer Winos Tour, mm-hmm. which is their live show, mm-hmm. um, the tour starts on... The 27th of February mm-hmm. uh, in Arnold. Okay. I hope Arnold knows about this. <laughs> um, the tour actually runs all the way into July. Yes. So just go to their website and have a look. Mm-hmm. But there is one on the 24th of March at the Museum of Comedy in London. Yes. Sadly, they're not sort of coming down this way. No, no. Um, come down this way and see us, boys. But I'd suggest the Paul Lighthouse. Yep. It, it yep. might be worth... Or the Tivoli at Wimborne. Yeah, which which does comedy they stuff on the Thursday, stuff, don't we? Yes. Yes. Uh, but yes, as I said, they will, they will be back, so mm-hmm. find out what happens next. Yes. Uh, now, hmm. uh, Paul and Nick yes. return. Mm-hmm. To look at another comedy programme. Which is... Maggie and Her. Thank <laughs> you. 
Hello, listeners. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti, um, um, otherwise known as Paul Chandler. I'm here with Nick Goodman. The not, um, so, not so shy human being. <laughs> yes. um, this time on Man the Archives, we're going to be discussing a show called Maggie and Her. Ah, yes. Yes, it's with Julia McKenzie and Irene Handel. Um, now, um, I've watched, I think I've watched the whole of the first series, and I, I really enjoyed it. But uh, I, I was uh, watching it, and I thought it would be fun to discuss the show a little bit with, with, with Nick, because you remember it I remember the first, first time. time I, remember, I remember the first series. I don't yeah. remember the second. I didn't realise it was the second series. Yeah. But I, I, the thing is, Friday nights in early 78 were quite busy, because um, I had, as you, obviously, you know, with the Magnet, the magnet Editor, I had a, a Friday night series of... Uh, called Look Again Mr Payne which is about an undersea water explorer and I used to lock myself in the loo and do the episodes um, and I used to come when I used to emerge Maggie and her were on was on mm-hmm. and I remember the music I, I couldn't sing it to but I think it was a sort of feminine kind of yeah, yeah. Ju- sort of tune and there, was a, there was a bit yeah, halfway through where um, I really handled it oh yeah was it? <laughs> and, um, but I, I used to I, I was had a crush on Judy uh, yeah I was I'd crush them. <laughs> Loads of people. Julia, Julia McKenzie was was um, uh, as my older woman crush back yeah. then. So uh, it, it was very easy viewing from that point of view. And I think it was probably the first thing I ever really saw with Irene Handlin. Yeah, there's... Um, um, you have Metal Mickey? That well, was, no, that was before, pre- This is before Metal Mickey. Yeah, I know, but... That's... Um, uh, that, 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 that's... That's... Uh, that's Ali. Um, um, the, the, the voice didn't come from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, the first series is um, seven episodes, but the the DVD from Network uh, has the pilot, uh, which is from '76. Yeah, uh, I, I knew nothing about. That's that. called Poppy and Her. <laughs> well, they, Maggie they, and they, her. they obviously rechristened her Maggie. I have watched, and then the the second series is six episodes, and that was from April '79 um, until sorry, I'm just trying to till May '79. Yeah. Now I, I we were. I, kind of decide we're going to watch the first episode of each series the uh, the first episode we're going to watch is called <laughs> the naughty window cleaner <laughs> which is a 70s title yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um i think these uh, episodes have the advert breaks in so we're going to stop and network. yeah we're going to stop and discuss between in in the advert breaks so we'll be we, we'll be back soon <laughs> so we've watched the first uh, First Indeed part of the naughty window cleaner, whatever it's called, the naughty window cleaner. Yes, I got it right. AKA Bernard Holly, who, who Axon Man from uh, the uh, uh, and and in to, uh, for Claws of Axos and Tomb of the Cybermen, and uh, who we Ali and I see at the Royal Theatrical uh, thing. But oh yes, I enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> Irina Handel's so funny, and uh, and Julia McKenzie so sexy. So you can't really go wrong. Really. <laughs> <laughs> the the um, I I know when I was watching it. It's not necessarily not necessarily always in this episode, but having seen the first season, mm. at times it does remind me a bit of a, a female version of Steptoe and Son. Indeed, yes. Um, and and sometimes even to the point where sometimes. I, I, I think, oh, they're, they're, treat, they're treating Irene Handel's character a bit sort of, uh, you know, sort of indelicately. Like, she's I, do, I, I do remember that, actually. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, in the same way as sometimes they did um, on Steptoe so. and I, I remember the title sequence with alarming accuracy. I remember those little kind of things. And, 
and the bit um, filmed insert at the end. Isn't uh, it? It's a shame, really, because this is the only episode that Bernard Holly is in, and um, I think probably they didn't want her to be too tied down to having a regular boyfriend. And because well, yeah, I get the feeling the premise of the series is she can't really settle uh, down, settle with, with yeah. a chap because because she's got this kind of neighbour from I must admit the, the hoarding aspect of, of the Mrs P character is interesting because um, we have a hoarder upstairs yeah. she's nothing like Irene she's, she's much less intrusive but uh, she she is a massive hoarder so I, yeah. I, I think that's a sort of old lady type thing there's um do you wonder how much extra whether it's all scripted or whether it's because sometimes it, they look like they're going to court yeah. they're going to court there is such because, a wicked twinkle in um, Irene Handel's eye when she's yeah. I've forgotten what a good actress she is <laughs> um, and also Sylvia Col- yeah. mighty Sylvia Coleridge who a year later turned up in Fish Heads on Blake 7 as, yes. as, as the croupier in Gambit and she was um, in um Seeds of Doom. Yes, yeah, she was. Into, she had a wonderful turn in Seeds of Doom. Yeah, as as um, uh, so um, Emilia Ducar. Again, again, I think um, one, wonder, wonderful character actresses. I think she's only in this. Uh, I mean, most episodes got a special guest or or, or a sort of. Uh, they are really. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think. There's probably is. I think that actually somewhere in the middle of the season there might almost be a sort of a little, almost like a, a story arc where a, a character does appear. She maybe does have a boyfriend that lasts I, a couple of episodes. I do remember something. a fella yeah. knocking around for a few episodes. Yeah, but they don't last long. <laughs> no, I, I, it's it, it, yeah, it's it's a nice little series. I used to, it's one of those series where although it ticks all the boxes, you you, you do get frustrated that she can't. Yeah. be happy but then there'd be no series if she was and you're always sort of waiting to see what's that, what I really had was going to do this episode oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> poor I, 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 I say, I just wish I was Bernard Holly <laughs> let, <laughs> let, let, let's see what happens next yeah. <laughs> we'll be back soon <laughs> So um we finished the our first episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh good, good good fun. Um now just to give a brief uh, sort of overview of the plot of the first episode um, the naughty window cleaner is played by Bernard Holly um, and there's lots of sort of teasing where mm. they think something's going on so Bernard Holly and Julie McKenzie um, sort of uh, sort of play up to it mm-hmm. um, and, and there's lots of uh, sort of <laughs> outrage from uh, or, or um, sort of outrage from Mrs P and the Various other ladies uh, in the house. One of which was a, a, a pre-Eastenders and a wing. Who's, yes. <laughs> who's kind of dressed, uh, tarted up to the nines, you know, and and, and uh, um, totally kind of different from her Eastenders character. Yeah, I can't remember how often the the other ladies appear. I don't think it's that often, if at all. But um, you know, it it uh, it. Uh, it 
there's, there's a lot of a lot of silliness, and, then, and it's, you can imagine it being on the stage. It's quite mm. far, the, the acting's all quite sort of like like almost like farce, but mm. uh, um, they're very good actors in that. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, I can see why, you know, because um, I remember, as I say, when I'd done my series on um, it's, it's, uh, Friday nights, I used to come out, and I think I. I'd, Either mis- mind your language or something else, and um, but I, I definitely used to watch this. Yeah, um, I bought it quite on a whim. I think is you know, you know how you you're sort of wandering around Amazon and <laughs> yeah. other things pop up, and I think the box set of this was something ridiculous, like a hundred fiver or something. It mm. wasn't expensive anyway, and I and um, I, I just sort of thought. Ooh. Irene Handel, right? and I've I sort of but I'm, Julie McKenzie. I didn't think about it like that. <laughs> well, that <really. laughs> oh, I, I don't know what. Um, I, I've also bought for the love of Ada recently, which I think mm. you also have. Did you say? That you... Oh, well, no, no, I, I mean, literally, I don't. It's it was on about seventy, so I, I don't remember it. But oh, yeah. we watched. It's on Talking Pictures. Oh, right, yes. they're, re-sh- re-watching, they're re-showing it. Yeah, I bought that. And, um, I'd only seen a. I, I saw a bit of it the, the other day. And, yeah, I'm hoping for, I'm hoping for plenty of Irene. I, <laughs> I, I, I think I get the feeling this is this. I suppose it, probably biased because I remember it, but I, I get the feeling this is a bit more my cup of tea. Yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, sometimes you watch these things, and the first episode's good, and the rest isn't so good. But I enjoyed every episode I've watched of this, which mm. I've watched the first series. But um, it's a very watchable, likable show. Yeah. Um, there is a step-toed character dynamic there, yeah, so. um, although it's not quite as arch and scheming as, as uh, it's scheming in the yeah. It's not, it's not quite as abrasive as uh, step-toe. Um, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Mrs. P reminds me, although she predates Lizzie Birdsworth in mm. Prisoner Cell Block H, mm. in that she gets her, her words all muddled up mm. and and um, and. and I mean, there are times when. Um, I really handled uh, Mrs. P's almost Stanley Unwin, you know, <laughs> her own language. But, um, mm. Well, I think we'll watch um, the first episode of the second series, and and uh, splendid. I, 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 I hope this will be enjoyable as well. Mm. Um, so we watched the first half of the first episode of series two, mm-hmm. which is called Holiday for Two. Mm. Yes. Um, which I actually I realise I, ha- I have seen this one as well, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's some good bits to come up in the second yeah. bit, and then there's some, it's all about uh, Maggie wanting to go on holiday, and Mrs P kind of well she doesn't do anything subtly, so yeah. she she's being quite passive aggressive that uh, she'd like to go, mm-hmm. but but okay it's fine if you don't want me to come. Uh-huh. Um, um, uh, notable in this episode uh, is John Kane. Mm-hmm. Of Tom, Tommy from Planet of the Spiders. Oh, uh, aren't you fleshy? <laughs> fleshy, yeah. yeah. I, I, I bet he's good in bed. Next time I, next time I watch Planet of the Spiders, I will see it in a completely different light. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the way that a little, uh, uh, like a, a little line, like "Oh no," with Irene Handel, it's "Oh no." Yeah, throws, oh my! Throws the head in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's, it's like she, she can. She can be quite big without, and still be subtle. You know, it's yeah. quite it, it's quite impressive uh, bit of work. But um, well, who I, the woman the woman who plays Maggie's friend in this looks pretty darn familiar. I, I'm trying to place who it is. And I feel I'm, like she's been in the first series as I'm, well. She might be a sort sort of returning character. I think she's a sort of 
TV steward at the time. I, I just went, oh. You, you said when we were watching. You said when we were watching it, another set. Oh. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, because you got to see them at the school, which yeah, you, you see them at the school quite. So I was, yeah. I, 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 I was, uh, my heartbeat didn't raise so much because I see, I've, uh, I've seen the school before, but uh, yeah. Oh well, no, I, I my heartbeat didn't. I'm, just <laughs> I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Oh, uh, it's, and I, <laughs> that, 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 any heartbeat raising is, is yeah. entirely due to Mackenzie's fault. <laughs> um, but, um, but no, um, with. I, I think I it's because uh, so you, you know, I suppose we've gone from the first episode of the first series to the f- f- second episode of the last season. In my head, I thought, oh, right, they've actually afforded another set now. But obviously, yeah. No, it's no. It. What a nasty bunch of kids. Oh, they're they, 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 you know, sort of. They're all about 25 as well. Yes, exactly. Half <laughs> uh, of them are And the headmistress is Carmen Silvera. Oh, yes. Um, Looking very prim and proper, as, as only Carmen Silvera could. I, 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 um, if. Um, if I really had not got to meet her, she'd probably say, oh, you stupid woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's shaping up quite nicely. Yeah, it's, uh, um, so, yes, at the moment, because her first offer is a hol- of a holiday um, gets cancelled, she's desperate to kind of uh, find a replacement holiday, which uh, isn't either with her boss, mm. the... Well, I would offer to go with her, but I, I was ten when this episode went down, yeah, so I, yeah. I, 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 that's a I, bit, bit dodgy. I think there's a scene coming up which I won't. Well, I think the kids at the hospital, the, um, the school would, would have been old enough to have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, there's a scene I, I'm looking forward to, to discussing. In, in, if, if it's the episode I'm thinking of, the um, yeah, this show never fails to sort of make you kind of <laughs> chin drop. Oh my goodness, I can't believe what they're doing now. But, uh, so let's go on to the final, the second part of this episode. And I will get a safety net for my chin. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> We're back again. Hello. Uh, we watched the last, the um, last bit. And, yes. I, and I have seen it before. Um, <laughs> that one. Yeah, yeah I, I, I remember. Uh, Tommy, uh, um, Johnny, Johnny Kane saying, "God, this is embarrassing." Every five minutes, <laughs> I thought it, I thought there was going to be a twist. I, I, I thought he was end up, going to end up being gay. Yeah, um, but um, but no, um, he, he, yeah, gr- I mean, great fun. I mean, he handles shows up in a, a full, full skiing costume. Yes, I mean, well, game old bird. You know, <laughs> you, you, you've got you've got to admire it. And um, with bloomers, with, but yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I, I think I'd prefer to see Julie McKenzie in her business. They ended up on location at the end of the yes. episode. I mean, like, it was obviously filmed in some god-awful um, day in, in, in sort of November or something. It, yeah. But then it's supposed, it was supposed to look awful. But um, also there was Chris, Christopher Owen from Meglos, Julie mm. Earthling and Meglos. Look, without his pricks on, <laughs> as it were. As it were. Careful, yeah. you say that. Yeah. Um, and, and I completely forgot to look out for that that lady who was in the first part. Um, oh, who, who, see, who it was? Who it was? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure she's in other episodes, but. Uh, uh, but no, it, it's just again, it's a it's a really nice show. Yeah, I've um, still got, I've still got another five episodes to watch for that season, but. Uh, um, yeah. It's, it's, and also. Of note, John Kane's because of course he, he he's written for many comedy shows, written for many drama shows, and he's actually because it's, it's I remember him in Doctor on the Go, but many 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 years ago. But um, seeing him in this, you could see he has you can see 
he's a very good actor as well as a very good writer because the comic timing um, with him and Ju- Julia McKenzie is is, is yeah, you very can, impressive. You can almost imagine that you can you could see the Terry Scott. Um, yes. Sort of, you know, considering he wrote lines for yes. Terry Scott, you could imagine him playing those lines. Oh because yes. That was almost the. Same. And he even looks like Terry Scott in some shots. Yeah. Know, sort of. yeah. But, uh, but no, it's. Um, yeah, there's nice, some good good talent on display. Yeah, so I, I uh, so uh, listeners, I think we we definitely both recommend um, giving uh, Maggie and her a go. It's oh, yes. uh, it's a good laugh. It's quite over the top, but that I think it'd be very difficult to sit there and not uh, crack a smile. It's, yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a good one, and it's uh, out there in Amazon. Available oh, now yes. from all good shops. Um, yeah, in the, yeah. What's left of them? Out there in the Amazon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know if it'll be in any stores. Probably not anymore. Well, but probably the last HMV is in the Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, it's, it's out there. And it's uh, it's worth watching. So uh, give yeah, it a go. And yeah. uh, thanks, Nick, for uh, for watching it with it's me. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, we'll hand back to uh, Trobe and Lisa. Bye bye. Bye bye. How much longer is that window cleaner going to be? <laughs> has he been in your bedroom? That's my business. Well, I hope you'll soon be finished with him. Well, I don't know. He might be ours yet. Filting. <laughs> I mean, I'm amusing, are you, George? These solemn little snoopers. Geisha Gold. Nosey Parker. Concubine. Lady Hitler. seen anything like it. No one will ever think you two were neighbours. Mother and daughter more like mother and only daughter at that. Thank you to Paul and Nick. Yes, thank you, boys. Yet again, another interesting article. And again, hmm. they will return they will in the return future. In the future, yes, lots of ideas bubbling yes, up. Yes, indeed. Um, now we're already coming to the end of the episode. We are, and we, we haven't are. done anything yet, no, we have haven't. we? But do some. We've I been in the fortunate situation yes. of having so much stuff from other people. Yes, that we were able to sort of step back a little bit. But with the passing of Windsor Davies, yes, uh, we had to do. Yes. It ain't our fault, Mum, didn't we? we did, yes. So Warren will join us on the sofa in mm-hmm. a minute and we'll look at the final two episodes. episodes. Uh, but before that happens, we'll just mm-hmm. do the wrap-up and mm-hmm. uh, say thank you to everyone for their help and yes. thank you to everyone for listening. Yes. And yes. 33 is not far away. No, it's not. It's 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 probably 75% done, isn't it? Mm, maybe. Yeah. I'm not saying too much yet. Yeah. Uh, so we'll say goodbye now, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, after the end title music, yes. do hang around yes. as we've got one of our bonus things. Yes. Because uh, we felt we ought to talk a bit about Round the Horn. Yes, as we're coming up to the 50th anniversary or uh, commemoration of the passing of Kenneth Horn. Indeed. On and the 14th it, of February. It's, it's an influential show on, on us. It is very much so. But in the meantime... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to eight half hot mum. Yes. And then we'll run the end credits and okay. we'll see you again. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.
half an hour on BBC One, there's comedy with the concert party in It Ain't Half Hot Mum. Tonight's story concerns the men's efforts to persuade their sergeant major to apply for a commission. That's at 7.45. Meet the gang, cause the boys are here, the boys to entertain you. With music and laughter to help you on your way, to raising the rafters with a hey, hey, hey. With songs and sketches and jokes old and new, with us about... You won't feel blue, so meet the gang, cause the boys are here, the boys to entertain you. B-O-B-O-Y-S, boys to entertain you! Good afternoon, Warren! Hello, lovely boy. Good afternoon, Warren. <laughs> Hello, Lisa, you got a lovely pair of shoulders. <laughs> show them off, show them off. Don't do accents. Okay. okay. We have mm. just watched the penultimate episode of AR Hot Mum. Yes, mm-hmm. in tribute to uh, Windsor Davies. Yes, and we will watch the final episode after we've chatted yes. about this one. This yeah. one, yeah. But uh, how much have you seen of this last season, Warren? I've only recently seen part of the last episode. Yeah. Uh, but I remember this from original transmission. Right. Because it's 1981, August yeah. 1981 this is. So I'd have been 11. Yeah, and uh, I would have been 13, <laughs> which is frightening. Yes. You wouldn't have been, would you? Uh, no, I was nine. Yeah. Did oh, you watch yes. them at the time? I, I honestly can't remember. Yeah. I know I've seen it, but I don't know if I've seen it more recently. Um, it depends what, to be honest, what day was it? Uh, Thursday. Right, so Coronation Street would have been on. So possibly. Yeah. This was on at half past eight after Citizen Smith. Yes, we might have done. It's a long time ago, I couldn't tell you for Um, sure. I remember the impact. Yeah. I do remember the impact and the sadness. But these last two episodes, I think, it's what I often say about sort of Perry and Croft series, is that um, they're very good when they have to challenge their own format. So Dad's Army never really gets a final final episode. Um, but this is very much everything's coming to an end. Yeah. And the same thing happens in the last episode of Heidi High as well, doesn't it? It does, And there's a lot in this that isn't comedy, really, is there? It's 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 all relationship drama, drama, isn't it? Very much relationship. Um, Lofty and Sergeant Major especially, isn't it? Yeah. Because the setup is that Lofty... Um, doesn't get his injections to go home so no. he has to yeah, stay, stay at the camp yes. and so they have to do what they think is their final farewell to him mm-hmm. there and you said Warren that um, the sergeant major you know you, you can see he's actually human yes. at this point Yeah. because um, you wrote us a lovely tribute about Winter Windsor Davies, Davies that yeah. went on our uh, on our blog a, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago uh, but I, I do, do like that two-hander scene between Windsor Davies and Don Estelle because yeah. um, it it sort of veers between sort of quite sentimental uh, being uncomfortable to watch uh, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and then with humour and then you get that wonderful bit where, where the sergeant major um, tells Lofty that you know if he's the only one here in, in camp he should carry on he's got to keep the standards up and inspect himself, himself every morning yes. <laughs> and then it suddenly dawns on him what he's just said yes. and he just does a little look Windsor Davies and, he? and he's got a sort of medium close up the camera's yeah. gone from a sort of wider shot yeah. to a close up on it because they know it's a funny line anyway you, you can sort of see how yeah. the camera script works but the audience 
add something to it because Windsor's reacting to the studio audience's yeah. response. He just stretches that a little bit, doesn't he? And he does it yeah. that little twitch thing he does with his mouth, yeah. you know, that um, he said something a bit rude, and that gets an extra and, laugh. And the pitch goes higher, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I, I think that's a great example of how sort of the, the, these types of comedies work with a with a studio audience. Yeah. Because you've had the opening scene as well, where they do the girls' routine. Yes. Dames. 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 Yeah. yeah. And that was almost direct. Well, as you said at the time, this this is for the audience, yeah. isn't it? It's well, Lo- Lofty up, is it? looking straight down the camera lens yeah. for mm-hmm. the first bit, mm. um, but they're really playing it for the studio audience, and they, they have to wait for the applause to stop, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Before they can carry on. That's almost American sitcom type. That that just brief moment, yes. isn't it? But you, it's yeah. their last hazard, but you said, isn't Lisa, it? about how they play women. Yes, badly. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> you said what Melvin Hayes is the only Melvin one Hayes is the only one who walks vaguely convincing. vaguely convincing as a woman. Everybody else walks like a man dressed as a woman with bandy legs. Yeah. Their but, legs apart. Women do not walk <laughs> bow-legged with their legs apart. Does Jim Brackett do? Well, yes, because they're men dressed as women. Are Again, they? it's the joke, isn't it? Are they? Okay. Yeah. Oh. But yeah. Stuart McGugan is oh. is amazing in that because he <laughs> yes. comes comes in and he's really so resentful. Yes, he looks to do so it. surly, doesn't he? He's, he's a like, butch soldier, totally crestfallen by. Yeah. It. He's all made up, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> Yeah, but you were, um, and I think it's the Scottish thing as well that yeah. just does yeah. it as well. Isn't but it? the captain and the colonel have got some brilliant scenes mm. as well. Yeah, I, I put them akin to a sort of um, a married couple, weren't yeah. they? And they were having a their, their little domestic spat in the corner, weren't well, they? As you said, uh, Mannering and Wilson. You, you yeah. can draw parallels between the Mannering Absolutely, and Wilson, yes. Wilson relationship. Yeah. Wilson. 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 <laughs> Not been on the L. Uh But when the colonel points out that he's a colonel, yeah. and that although the captain's yes. given him a piece of his mind finally <laughs> he's still the one in charge yes. and that is the the, the mannering yeah. wilson yes. thing i've got yeah. three pips and yeah. don't you forget it so do mm-hmm. you think that they've made up for the fact that dad's army didn't have that ending yeah because the ending of dad's army was in the first episode wasn't it yeah they sat around the table because <laughs> i always wondered what the what the demob episode of dad's army would would yeah. be like mm. and although you get that tribute scene to you know the real home guard at the end of it you could have done another season, you yeah. know, you know, beyond that. But this is very much we're writing an ending, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that it's not just done in one episode. It, it's spread, spread it out. It's too. spread out over two. You, mm. you don't rush. It's a slow burn. You're bringing and you're bringing the emotional tension up within the audience and and the viewers, aren't you? And that, and that final shot of the ship going out is amazing as the camera just draws yeah. back and back and back and back. We we can't quite work out where it was filmed. No, no. Um, no. But if anybody knows, let us know. We've had about three or four yeah. different it's answers. It's also an uncomfortable shot, isn't yeah. it? Yes. It's an uncomfortable situation where the Punkawallas are saying... The Chawalla. Chawalla, yeah. saying all these beautiful things. Yeah. About this, and increasingly and they can't hear him because the ship's yeah. getting further and further away. He's having to shout louder yeah. and louder. Yeah. And they're, they're just realise how they were treating people perhaps mm. yeah and also there's a point in this as well and he's shouting I have gifts yes. as well. yeah. yeah and there's a point that I'd not noticed before where he says he'd like to go to England because yeah. yes. you know he like and they can shout at him all day and call him names and as you said the only people that are being um racist in this particular episode are the the is the Indian character and the Chinese character yeah. everybody else you know Obviously, there's not time for it in this episode. But a nice little bit as well is is because Lofty's not there, 
and they have to give the performance oh, for the Gary oh, Joe. Oh, yeah, to get yeah. a fan It's the belt. colonel and the captain. <laughs> yeah. But as you said, Lisa... Just give him the sheet music. He doesn't know the words. And the colonel's reading it out to him. I'm like, just give him the piece of music and let him read it. So, but that then... Adding to the comedy. Fantastic yes. line that says yes. of him just turning to him at the end and said, "Well, that wasn't difficult, was it?" <laughs> <laughs> but then he's trying to wear um, lofty lo- trousers. trousers as well. <laughs> and the trousers are so short. Oh, they so do like their short trousers. Yeah, thing, David yeah, Croft, doesn't that, he? That was in the uh, mm-hmm. "Are You Being Served?" We watched yeah. as well. It was, it was very much a Laurel and Hardy moment with his trousers <laughs> drop, yes. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They, all, they all, they all. But love lovely episode, I think, yeah. all round. And uh, very much looking forward to seeing really much, seeing yeah. the next one now. Mm-hmm. Very so, much so. So yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there and yes. come back yes. again with a with some more thoughts. Okay. See you soon then. Bye bye. Bye bye. So the last roll call. Mm-hmm. That was really sad, it wasn't it? Quite it's quite sad, sad, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. It's the way they sort of give the in the in the end theme. They give it a little bit of echo and it starts to fade away. Mm, as the train as draws. As the train draws away draws out of off. the station. And the titles went up and it was very quiet in here, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. But you see what I mean about being, it being an actual ending to the series. Yes. And just for those last few minutes, you don't want the episode to end, do no, you? No, you'd actually quite like to see what happens to Sergeant Major yeah. Williams. Mm. Because, in particular yeah, this is the episode not only where they're coming home but where the sergeant major's entire world has just come crashing down around him yes. doesn't it yeah. there's the, the wonderful shots of them individually in the carriage yeah. and they're just looking out of the window and it's just their eyes say it all don't yeah. they it's, it's, there's, there's fear there's anticipation there's trepidation what are they going to? Yeah. And it's the attitude as well, because they've been out in Burma fighting all this time. Mm. And they come home, and I think they expect to be treated like heroes. Yeah. And they're not. No. Because there's been so much fighting going on that everybody's tired of it and mm. sick of it. And nobody actually appreciates it now. No. It, it's so, a very bittersweet episode, actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because it starts off with this sort of st- rather strange animation of the ship <laughs> yes. sort of coming Because obviously home. there's no way of doing that on the budget. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then even when they get to port, as we cynically said, <laughs> the reason it's foggy... Mm. Is to hide it's the is same place. Is to, to hide the fact that they're filming where they were last week. And they did use the same person who played the MP in the previous one, but he has yeah. it back to the... But you can clearly tell it's him. But yes, but yeah. then they immediately run into customs, don't yes. they? So they have to make their declarations about whether they've got any sort of rubies or heavy Diamonds machinery <laughs> or perfume. Because <laughs> I thought they were going to open. I forgot they didn't, but I, I could imagine them opening a glorious, glorious case, case <laughs> and, and all these women's the underwear. <laughs> but as 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 uh, Gloria says, "Are you joking? We've been up the jungle. Mm. You know, it's like, where are we going to get heavy machinery from?" <laughs> But yeah, the captain and the colonel, they have a problem coming up against all, all, every, everybody yeah. they meet. The, yeah. the captain always wants to take everybody's name because he doesn't think they're treating them with, with respect. respect. Definitely, yeah. And, and you, you say that there's a lot of class commentary going on here as yeah. well. That you know that, that they're real idiots, aren't they? The, mm. the captain and the colonel. And I, you know, I, I don't know sort of much about their their background because there's this there's a line about his chauffeur or his, his, his butler his yes. gardener or whatever and i i don't know you know what they're actually going to yeah mm. 
Um, you you can sort of guess what the sort of the the, the men are going to, you know, mm -hmm. their, their families or, or whatever. You know, the sergeant major is m a, a supposedly going for this job in a prison, but that mm -hmm. doesn't happen. So he's mm -hmm. got nothing to go to. Yeah, but uh, I think I think it's very much a case of they were they were. Um, masters of their own domain for mm. so long weren't they yeah. and now they've come up into the small fish now in the big pond. yeah they've got yeah. to face the real world again yeah. and all the buro bureaucracy and all the sort of pettiness yeah of real life every day every everyday things that people would have been used to to deal yeah. with and like, been removed from their yeah. lives rationing coupons mm. and closing coupons and you know but you, you get the scene where they're in the pouring rain clearly they've got the rain machine out and the sergeant major's just drilling them because yeah. it's the only thing that he's he got left yeah, yeah it's the only thing he's clinging yeah. desperately desperately and windsor does that so well it's it's the it's the total disintegration mm. of a person because he desperately doesn't want to let this go yeah so like mm. cleaning the coal is is that all, it's all he can think of yeah. at this point you know and then the, the captain and the colonel come in with their umbrella, see what he's up to, and just walk away. Cause it's they so desperately sad, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah. th then th you get the captain and the colonel saying goodbye to the men. I won't forget you, <laughs> gunner-um, gunner-um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Clearly proving that they don't care about the men yeah. at all, whereas the sergeant major actually does. Yes. Um, he's hard on them, but he knows yeah. all their names. He knows yeah. their little foibles everything like yeah. that and i love the bit where they're going to go through the door the two doors <laughs> one for the officers and one for everybody else well i guess this is where we say goodbye they go through the door and the set has been designed so that <laughs> on the other side of the door it's the same room yeah. that that that's a little a it's a good joke yeah but b it's telling that now they're back in society the same two doors will lead them to the same okay. place yeah mm -hmm. then you've got bill pertwee handing out the jackets and, and yeah. jeffrey seagull as well yeah. seagull 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 i think i don't know <laughs> mr perkins yeah. went ghost mm. but yeah what, what's the line about um what's it Okay. Um, well, they're trying to fit out lofty some yeah. boys shirts sure, with fat, fat necks, necks. <laughs> <laughs> and then because they'd all plan to like tell the sergeant major what they yeah. thought of him, you mm. know, sort of make a gesture or say rude words or punch, or, or punch him. Punch him. Or, yeah. When it came up and moved such a sad, deflated character, and they said that, mm. didn't they? He looked yeah. so sad. It's and it, it's, it's that lovely thing of you, you hand the bloke your little card, yeah. he stamps the card, mm. and suddenly you're called Mister. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, that's, that, that's your whole world changing there in just, just mm. a fraction of a second, just mm. by that stamp going on that, that bit of paper. And then, of course, once they're in the real world again, they, they can't be bothered to, no. to, to harangue him, though. No. Because you, you said the look on Gloria's face when he's called Mr. Yes. For the first time. He's, he's like sort of rabbit in headlights yeah. almost, isn't he's he? He's forgotten what it's like yeah. to yeah. be called Mr. Well, yes, they've been fed, they've been watered, they've been, they've been drilled. All they're, their needs have been taken yeah, care of. They've been put part of a large family, and now mm. they're not. They're on their own. Yeah. Mm. But... And then we get the final few scenes in the in the sort of cafe mm. bit. Mm. There's no. I like the fact the beer runs no. out. <laughs> no beer. And again, that's a dad's armyism, you know. Yeah. Um, but then that that, uncom that uncomfortable bit where the captain and the colonel don't know how to talk to them. Yes. Because mm. they're 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 just sort of citizens now they've not... never really had to speak to them have no, they? no. They, th they, they go through other people don't they so mm. suddenly there's some very uncomfortable small talk and they're yeah. basically glad when when they get out of there <laughs> yeah. 
because they're so happy when they're sat in their first class compartment yeah. and everyone else is cramming down onto the train aren't yeah. they and then from here on it is Windsor Davies's show yeah. for the for the yeah. till the end of the episode really. I think quite rightly too yeah because you know you said Lisa we, we should just say about yeah. how how clever his sort of performance is, is here isn't it it is because um, he doesn't want them to know because they ask him, oh, is he going to Parkhurst or, mm. or wherever? And he says, oh, no, there's been a hold-up. But he won't admit it. But he no. won't admit that they've they've refused him the job he? because he's too old. Yeah. But Gunner Parking can see through that. So yeah. he comes back to see him and he says to him, well, you can come and stay with Mum and me. I think the whole troop yeah. saw through him. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, Apart from the officers. but And then it's role reversal, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but I, yeah. Like the, I like the feeling that I get that he's just been rescued. Yeah. Yes. Because what would have happened to him? Yeah, he would yeah. have just gone to live in some grotty little room and and yeah and yeah yeah. Now he's going back with uh, Gunner Parkin and his mum. Yeah, who yeah. was an he's an old flame of his, isn't yeah, she? That's right. So you know, so it, 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 it's a, I think all the pieces fall in where they deserve to in this in this last episode unexpectedly that, so in some cases yeah, yeah. but it, it feels right yes. I think that that's the thing and that, that's the genius of the plotting here I think and you can't leave it untold yeah the, the, you can leave the the untold story of what are they going to yeah but you cannot leave them at such loose ends because they literally go through individual characters what are you going to do now yeah um, and I love the fact the final final post credit scene yes. Go, goes to Dino Shafiq yes. writing his letter. Yeah, well. So, well, so, well, he's just wiggling his pen, <laughs> wiggling up, his pen pencil up and down with his chara and <laughs> by him. I don't know why you still got it. But he's saying how he's going to come and open a restaurant in, in, Bradford. in, Bradford. in Bradford. The beautiful city of Bradford. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we all chuckled. Yes. <laughs> but but it's, I think it's a real reflection. And it's, it's obviously, it's probably... A reflection of the way David Croft and Jimmy Perry felt when they left the army at the end mm. of the Second World War. Yeah. That you've done all this, you've put your life on the line, you fought for king and country, you get home and nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. And the world is grey and depressing and rationing still in. And it's life almost is, life like... Life has been going on whilst yeah. you've been away. And it's almost like, what was the point? Yeah. Mm. What, yeah. What have I been fighting for? Because nobody's actually And I don't think... Caring. You can... If you use it in a drama programme, it's throwaway. If you yeah. use it in comedy and mix it with comedy, it sticks with the it, audience. These two episodes resonates. especially, it's the bit where the laughter suddenly stops. Yeah. And I think that, that makes the the character stuff really hit home a lot more. Yeah. There's also some uncomfortable laughter over the two. Yeah. Where you realise it is um, such a life-changing experience for all of them from leaving the war to going back mm. to normal life. Yeah, but yeah, I I think those are two. Yeah. You know, if you're going to see some eight half hot mums, yeah, even on their own, I think they work well, really well. Alone, absolutely, you, you, you know, you don't necessarily need to have seen the whole of the series that beforehand. Will help you with the it will help you, yeah. but you can. I think you can almost come to these cold, and they're still they still really work. But um, so Windsor but, is just head and shoulders above yeah. the crowd, isn't mm. it? Just his little twitches, his face <laughs> pulling, you know. <laughs> You know the sort of I want that cold gleaming, <laughs> <laughs> and as you said, the look, the sort of look of sadness and disappointment. Mm. Mm. It, it was the the two hander, the brief two hander in the uh, in the buffet, mm. and when they had the close ups on them, it, I was just watching the eyes, nothing yeah. else, the eyes, and those two actors were marvellous with that because mm. um, his so called illegitimate son, perhaps. Yeah. 
has glee- gleaming, I-, I want you to come home, I yeah. want you to come home. Yeah. And the absolute shock and disbelief of somebody's accepting and is happy to have mm. him in their home. Mm. Yeah. Well, mm. so yeah. thank you, everybody, yes. but thank you, oh, Windsor, thank you. especially. Yes, and we should just say, as, as, a, as a sort of postscript mm. about Windsor Davis, that he didn't just do comedy. No, no, no. You know, I, I, we've seen him in, he's in, um, it's a very bleak episode of Dixon of Doc Green, but it's it's a pretty good episode. Yeah. He's in um, a Crown Court episode. Oh, yes. yeah. Obviously, he's in Doctor Who Evil of the Daleks. Yeah. And you said he's in some new Scotland Yards, yeah, yeah. and um, he's in UFO as well. Yeah, yeah. And so he pops up in all sorts of the things, Avengers. Yeah. So don't just think of him as a comedy actor. No, he's no. a superb he's an actor, actor he's who actor, can yeah. do comedy very well. Yeah, well, there you go. So, and oh. comedy is the most difficult thing to yes. do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, yeah. everybody. Yeah. No, thank you. And uh, we'll say to Alan. Okay. Bye. 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 Episode 32 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Martin Holmes, Bob Fisher, Andrew T. Smith, Paul Chandler and Nick Goodman. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for It Ain't Half Hot Mum were by Jimmy Perry and David Croft. And the producer was David Croft. Just a little bonus thing yes. for this episode. Yes. Boner? Bonus. Oh, bonus. Boner. Well, a boner bonus thing. A bonus boner. Yes. Uh, indeed. Uh, as 14th of February 1969, saw um, the passing, saw, saw passing mm. of Kenneth Horn. Of Kenneth Horn, yes. And with this issue coming out in February 2019, mm. yes. that's 50 years. It so is. Um, We're called Round the Archives. We it's are. not a coincidence that no. that's not a million miles away from Round yeah. the Horn. No, we'd listen to an awful lot of Round the Horn, hadn't we? Well, we needed a format when yeah. we were planning episode one. Mm-hmm. And I always say steal from the best. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the way Round the Horn works. 
works because it's all different things yeah it, it's it's a sort of mixed bag of things but it's got regular contributors yeah. if you see what i mean and that's what i was always hoping we'd build up uh, for around the archives and we have so a wonderful house style with it yeah it? but yeah. it's very obvious that the especially the early issues we i virtually rewrote jokes from the opening episode the opening mm-hmm. of episodes of round yeah. the horn like the answers yeah. to last week's quiz or yes. things like that yeah. or, and our end credits of course use the exact same format that yes. was round the horn yeah. mm-hmm. um, starring written by and the producer mm-hmm. was because yeah. we've just listened to an episode from season two mm-hmm. and warren you came with us um, yes. to see it being done on stage yes. in Paul. The second time it came yeah. to Paul. Oh, was it the yes. second time? Yes. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we, we yeah. saw it at, at Paul um, years ago yes. now. Yes, mm. a few years back now. Yeah. yeah. And um, then it came again two years ago. And then we suggested to you, Warren, that you might like to come mm. and see Did you know much Round the Horn? No. Um, um, you played me a, some Round the Horn I'd, I'd heard of the series. Yeah. Uh, and I view nothing about it until yeah. you played that. Okay. Uh, I, no, sorry, I would not heard anything about that, but I, I was aware of the series. And the stage show was amazing. Now, <laughs> now, now you've heard an episode on CD. Yeah. Do you imagine what's going on stage? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because yeah. you you know you know the way it works. Yeah. Um, that they do they're doing their their scene, and Kenneth Williams will interject or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and that was very well captured, I think, in the stage <laughs> show. That although there is a script and they stick to the script, yeah. there's still room, room to for... embroider yeah. around the edges. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I must say, when we saw it on stage. Both times, I found myself as, as I mean, everybody was very good. Yeah. And the actor that was playing Kenneth Williams was very good. Yeah. But I found myself watching the actor doing Hugh Paddock All more right. okay. yeah. because he was slightly playing up to the audience, <laughs> but not quite so outrageously as the actor playing Kenneth Williams. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if Hugh Paddock used to do that or not, but. It was it was just quite nice. I found myself watching him quite a lot. But the sh- the show itself, you know. You've got some major stars there, but the show itself is round the horn. Yeah. So he's the one that holds it all together yes. and gives it an air of respectability. Yeah. This is yeah. what I can say. Yeah. He, he is your archetypal BBC um, radio voice. Voice. Yeah. It's and very then, professional. Yes. Yeah. And never loses that. No. And uh, but it's what goes on around him, and he's dragged into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in some ways that. Even that sort of approach, you can see some parallels with with what we try to do. Because, yes, we do pee about and we're very, very silly. And we do get as much rude innuendo in there as possible. Mm -hmm. But I think our equivalent of Kenneth Horne is trying to get the facts right as much as possible. So we're we're trying to be respectable in that, (laughs) you know, in in that respect. But in other ways, we're, we're and we've done it increasingly, I think. Um, the more stuff we do with you, the more we try and get rudery in <laughs> yes. there, but yes. played absolutely straight, straight yes. down the line. That, it's the only the way to play rudery, it is. isn't it? it yeah. is. But yeah. do you do you find that we we might if we've all known each other thirty years ago, mm. we wouldn't have done it in this style? No. But no. now we've got 
Well, you, you, maturer, we would say. We, yes. we have a subtler way of putting the rudery in. Yes. You, you, I, think, I think it's true that we all know what each other's thinking when we're talking about anything. Yeah. Um, so we're Stop a, it, Lisa. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're able to help each other with, it, with, their sentence, with our sentences if we can't think of a word. Yeah. But equally, if I say something slightly innuendo-ish, you, you, can, you can work with that, can't you? Yeah. So... Yeah, but I, I don't, you know, we've never really talked about radio comedy in around the archives, and this 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 was always a a, a thing for TV, you know, mm. his history. But I think so, people sometimes sort of don't listen to old radio comedy enough, and that there's a hell of a lot of it out out there yeah. that that really is worth it. Because yeah, there are radio shows that are adaptations of T V shows, you know, mm-hmm. Dad's Army, Steptoe and Son. And those work really well. But for something that is pure radio, mm-hmm. like Round the Horn. Or the Navy Lark. Or the Navy Lark. Yeah. I mean we listened to the uh the one we listened to was about Moby Duck, yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. it? It was the the, the play at the start. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it just does conjure up weird images. I had almost a Captain Pugwash yeah. type cut out of a duck. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was say, how did you visualise it? Yeah. I'm interested in, in And then sort of Kenneth Williams would come in doing his sort of seaman's accent, as it, you know, ooh ah, ooh ah, and then he'll just drop in, always, oh, you know, and, and then he'll drop into his like snide other persona. Voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Snide persona. Because uh, what they're saying about. Um, Kenneth Orne is playing young cuck powder with his <laughs> with his long blonde hair. Oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> Don't have to have use your imagination. Um, but I also find that Brand the Horn really, really rattles along. Yes. Mm. Um, yes, we do tend to skip over the the, the song. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, they're chaptered, so you can just press a button and <laughs> ignore the song. Um, but that that zoomed by, I, mm, I think. Absolutely. And I think again, that's what we're trying to aim it's for. We we pace. might have, we might do long articles about yeah. some things, but I think we try and keep the pace. And it, it's it, it, we are still trying to do a piece of entertainment here, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. It's not just going to be a boring list of facts. So. I think Round the Horn influences us in lots of ways. That, I think a hell of a lot more than we actually take the, the, credit for. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. So, you know, 50 years after the passing of Kenneth Horn, thank mm. you for giving us a, a format that, that, we're, that we're still yeah. building yeah. on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Round the Horn. Mm. Have a listen. Definitely. Absolutely. You won't be disappointed. No. Boner. Mm. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.